1: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that follows the money behind our beautiful game And just for today, think UEFA took sweet, sweet revenge on Man City via the medium of VAR I'm Kevin Day and over there in Sussex is Professor of Swearing and Expert in
0: Football Finance, Kieran Maguire How are you Kieran? I'm grand, thanks Kevin, uh, Look. it's looking like Armageddon outside, into weather-wise, but uh, other than that, all's good. Yeah, that's, it's really annoying, my
1: wife's in Birmingham, it's pouring rain there, you're in Sussex, it's pouring rain, and it's, it's like a little burst of sunshine here, which is really annoying me. Now, um, Kieran, I don't want to be childish, but producer Guy,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can be if I want to, but producer Guy, as you know, is away in the Lake District. So we have to record and edit this one ourselves. So I reckon we could probably fill our boots on this one.
0: Oh joy! It joy, could this is, this
1: is be fun. This is yeah. be fun. Do you know how to edit, by the way? Oh yeah. yeah oh you no do. Problem. Oh great. Okay, yeah, yeah. fine. Really? You you are multi skilled. That's that surprised me. I thought we might have to get Big Dave out of prison again just to do <laughs> Um It's it's Monday, Kieran. So that means it's questions day. But as ever, we do have a couple of news stories. I think Guy must have had the caravan hitched up, ready to go, because the first news story simply says. Big Six kits? Question mark.
0: Yes, um, as you know, it's uh, kit kit release season, uh, and everybody gets very giddy, and we, and we all become experts on on color schemes and so on. Um, but I, I looked at it from a, from a numbers point of view, as 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 I want. And um, if you're a Big Six fan, and some people will say well, they deserve, um, you're going to be paying on average sixty three pounds sixty six for your kit. But if you support any of the other clubs in the Premier League, it's only fifty only fifty five, but that's still mm. is Um price. So yeah, big uh, big six fans are paying on average eight pounds uh, per kit uh, yeah, per shirt. Um, I think it's only Newcastle uh, are the only non big six team to be charging more than sixty pounds, effectively charging Champions League prices for uh, Steve Bruce and Co. Uh, and Mike Ashley. Um, yeah, pr- prices have gone up significantly this season. It would appear, uh, and and I know we we can always say, well, hold on, yeah, we, we're grown ups. So nobody's forcing us to buy these things, and and say no to pester power from kids. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, if if they do want one of these new things, but it used to be that a kit of home kit would last you two years, and an away kit would last you two years, and effectively they'd alternate one each year. But now we're having two or three changes every single season. And it does appear, whether it's a, whether it's coming from the clubs, whether it's coming from the manufacturers, um, that, that there is this increasing desire to to extract as much cash from us as possible through merchandise.
1: Yeah, it, it, funny enough, well, I think that explains the continuing success of um, retro vintage shirts as well. You see as many fans wearing those as you do wearing the modern shirt. But we've got a question coming up, basically, uh, in the pod about kits. And, and we also had somebody, uh, a regular listener of ours called Jed Dye, um I I think there's enough interesting kits for us to add this to our list of specials because I think that the the process, the progress whereby kits get made, whereby they get, you know, chosen, whether it's by a chairman, you know, at Palace he's very hands-on, whether it's by a fan occasionally or whether it's by a committee, and then how the kit gets manufactured and how basically it makes its way from the Far East where it will inevitably be manufactured for peanuts. And then the further west it goes, the more expensive it becomes. So I think that's something we need to to look at as well. But um, in the meantime, Kieran, ominous noises coming from the Wigan administrator.
0: Uh, Yes, uh, the the administrators published a report on Thursday night. Um, Now, officially, this is only available to creditors of the club, but I managed to get the password for it and and downloaded it. (laughs) How did you do that? I've got I've got family connections, you know, uh, you sort of, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. When, when you've got uh, when, when you've got children, they know how to hack everything, so sort of just just pass it across to one of the offspring. There's some strange things involved. The, the administrators have effectively set a 31st of August deadline because what they don't want to do is for Wigan Athletic to start the season and then the the the, the administrators themselves who who don't get any money remember they're not generating money themselves apart from player sales um, and the money they get from the EFL and they they've quickly worked out they're going to be losing money and um, yeah they don't want to uh, take on the contracts of the players or the other staff they're a firm of accountants um so that they are sort of hinting that if they've not sold the the club by the 31st of August um there is a chance uh, that the club could be effectively put into liquidation as opposed to administration, and for those of the people not familiar with the, the, the difference, um, the administrator is a bit like an A and E surgeon, who's you know somebody has been wheeled in, and, and and the job of the administrator is to try to keep that person alive and and, and get them wheeled out, to, you mm. know, to get, go back to uh, go back to some form of normal life. Whereas it's the liquidator, he's the undertaker. Yes. Um, so you know, it, it is uh, it is a concern. Uh some people said has it could it be scare tactics by the administrators? Well it it could be, but you know they they, they genuinely want to, to pass this one on. They've already racked up over one million pounds in fees um since we can have gone into administration. Um so yeah, the clock is is ticking and it's ticking fast uh with with regards to, to their commitments. Um, and and the other thing which sort of hit me in, in respect of the uh the administrator's report is that Uh, Al Young, the the guy who effectively now owns the club, he did put in, it looks like 930 grand initially to to keep the club going. And then he just said, I've I've had enough of that and and closed it down, which it's just becoming increasingly bizarre as as to the logic behind his actions.
1: Right. I've I've actually written down, is this an administrator tactic? Because it occurred to me that we talked uh, only a week ago about there being several interested parties. So I wondered whether this was a hurry up to those parties or, as you say, it's shock tactic or whether it's actually genuine fear on the administrators' part.
0: Well, well, I mean, the, the administrators did say that uh, yeah, they've had a lot of tyre kickers around, so they'll only let people into what's referred to as the data room, which contains all of the, the details of the club's accounts and so on, if people put down a non-refundable deposit, right. um, which, which you know, I think got rid of quite a few of the interested parties somebody did come in with an offer which was sounded acceptable but once the EFL docked Wigan 12 points and put um Wigan into League One that offer was then revised by the bidder um and, and apparently the, the revised figure was so derisory that the uh the administrators told them to uh you know go down their own end of the street with regards to that one so it's uh it's not looking great. Uh, I'll, I'll see if we can get the administrators on the show in the next fortnight. That uh, they have been actually pretty uh, pretty good in, in terms of public relations. Um, to see if we can get any, any update, uh, you know, and sort of ask them one or two technical questions as well.
1: Yes, and credit where credit's due. Well done for not swearing then when you said the the other end of the road. That's very good. And I believe as well that uh, if any interested parties do want to get in the data room, just have a word with one of your kids, by the sound of it. They'll probably get you, won't they? Um, Now, Mesut Ozil has issued a statement, or to some Arsenal fans, it's more of a threat, which says he will stay with Arsenal, and I quote, through to the last day of his contract in June
0: 2021. How much will that cost Arsenal and him? um well it will cost arsenal somewhere in the region of 17 million pounds uh that is his annual salary cool. um, and and this is this is sort of a legacy of what happens when players get into um the last year of their contract and, and and clubs have now got to juggle two things if if the player goes away on a bosman if you look at the total cost of employing a player it's the transfer fee plus his wages So uh, Mesut Ozil originally joined Arsenal in the summer of 2013. He signed a five-year deal. Um, Arsenal have prevaricated on many deals. So it got to January 2018 um, and he still hadn't renewed the contract. His value was effectively close to zero in the transfer market because at, at that stage, he can start talking to other clubs so Arsenal came in with a new three-year extension on his contract, which uh, more than doubled his wages. It, it put him on, on around about seventeen and a half, eighteen million million, £18 million a year. Um, but, of course, now his his relationship with the club appears to have soured somewhat. He was he was a player who refused to take the 12.5% pay cut mm. uh, that, that other members of the squad have taken. Um, and, and there are huge similarities here, I think, with, with the likes of Gareth Bale and, and David De Gea. Uh, you know, Gareth Bale has, uh, you know, he's on a £30 million a year contract, if, if truth, uh, if, if rumour is truth, should I say, um, in terms of what's being quoted in the press. Um, and his contract doesn't expire until 2022. He said, I like living in Madrid. I'm quite happy to stick around here. Although he's not prepared to go to Manchester to uh, to, to see them, uh, you know, to support his team there. Yeah. Um, and, and in respect of David De Gea, his contract was coming to uh, towards the end. Uh, United were aware, or Manchester United were aware, there were other interested parties. So again, they stick in, you know, a whopping great big pay deal, tie him down. Um, his form has been a bit erratic, um, and now people are saying, well, you know, are we paying you know, the, you know, the thick end of £20 million a year for somebody uh, you know, for three or four years, and who isn't perhaps quite as good as he used to be. Now, that's mm. not for I'm not a United fan.
1: Yeah, um, apologies for the sound effect there. When I try not to sneeze, I'm aware that I sound like a Disney character sneezing. Uh, <laughs> and as we seem to be, SW16 seems to be the only postcode with actual sunshine today. I'm probably the only person in the country that's got hay fever. Um, now, it's not all bad news for Man City, though, um, despite their <laughs> shafting by VAR. Because um, there's rumours that that Lionel Messi may be indeed coming to the Premier League at last for Man City, but even better than that, Man City have a new official snack partner. Big news! This is,
0: fan- this is fantastic news, and this is going to lift the spirits of of all City fans who uh, who have, who saw them lose uh, the other night, and who are probably still every thirty seconds revisiting uh, uh, Raheem Sterling's uh, miss oh, from three yards. Yeah which uh, which I think but both you and me would probably fancy our chances at, and that's saying something. Um, so, yeah, they've signed up. And this is sort of an ongoing trend that uh, clubs are getting partners for individual industries. So there's, if you take a look at the, the Premier League itself, it's got an official timekeeper partner, mm-hmm. an official ball partner, a soft drink partner, a beer partner, a snack partner, a lead partner, which turns out to be uh, EA Sports, And then a names and number printer. You know, if you want, you can get players' names and numbers, and it comes with a little Premier League logo on. Uh Well, they've got an official partner for that as well, a company called Avery Dennison, which I'd never heard of. Uh, They've got an official sticker partner in Panini. Um, And all of that adds up to £99 million for the Premier League each year, which it splits evenly between all 20 clubs and yeah you know, as we are increasingly in in a world where the big clubs are trying to snatch it all um yeah this this is one of the few good things in terms of the sort of the democracy of that particular division no doubt the larger clubs will be tapping on uh, uh, richard master's door and saying well yeah, surely we should have a bit more of the uh, of of the snacks and and the uh, and the panini stickers and so on but uh, so, so that's where it is. And City now have an additional partner that they're trying to catch up with with Manchester United, who are by far the market leaders. United yeah. have two hundred and seventy-five million pounds coming through their commercial deals, and I think that they've shown the way for other clubs to uh, to follow them.
1: And you're keeping us in tenter hooks
0: so here. Who are the new official snack partner for Man City? Well, it's it's a company called Mondelez. Ah, oh. exactly. Yeah. Um, But they they are actually a big brand owner. So they they did buy Cadbury and and other brands as well. Um, So if if you actually take a look at all branded food, 95 percent of branded food uh, actually is produced by seven companies in the world. Mm. Um, That
1: photograph you sent me just before the pod of you wearing your brand new Philadelphia Union shirt. Have you got your name printed on the back of that?
0: Uh, not yet, but yeah, some people would say I've got my name printed on the front.
1: Yes, because what's the, what's, what's the official part of that? I wish I could explain to people. You might have to put it online just so people can see the childish smile you're wearing as you point at the name of the sponsor on the front of the shirt that the Baroness kindly bought you. What it, What does it
0: say? Um, well, uh, Philadelphia Union, who are uh, the Price of Football podcast's official, unofficial MLS team, <laughs> they are they are sponsored by a company called Bimbo. Mm. Um, now, some people would say it's probably not the first time that I've had a Bimbo on my chest, um, but the Baroness has said it's certainly the last. Um, so uh, <laughs>
1: that's that's enti- I apologise to any listeners who may be offended by that. It's entirely my fault. I led him down that avenue unsuspectingly. So le- let's move on to our final news story. Kira, which is one that's kept under the radar a little bit, which I think Tottenham Hotspur will be glad about. Um, and I suspect you're about to use that phrase tin ear again in this story.
0: Uh, well, yes, funnily, that that's what got written down on my notes. So uh, we, we, we certainly have become very married yep. over the course of the last 10 months or so. Um, th- this, is, this is a COVID-19 related story, which, were, which, which was published in Private Eye, uh, of which, of course, we are both big fans. Uh-huh. Um, Spurs have done a lot of good in relation to Uh, COVID-19. They've given testing facilities, they've made testing facilities available. Um, Underneath the ground, they've got an air-conditioned car park, uh, and they've made that available to a a local food hub, which effectively is being coordinated by Haringey Council. Um, It's staffed by volunteers, but Jose Mourinho, he's been out delivering food parcels to people who are vulnerable, as have some of the female players of Spurs, so all of this, yeah, this is, our, yeah this, this is what we want from our football club. You know, it's, it mm. ties in with our, you know, belief and ethos is that football club goes beyond um, just uh, football matches on a Saturday afternoon. Um, then we come to a couple of negatives. You know, Spurs did adopt the furlough scheme and they they reversed it due to fan pressure, and mm. and, and they were fairly mealy-mouthed uh, when they did reverse it. There was sort of you know mutterings and grumblings taking place. Uh, but a, but a uh, somebody close to to Spurs, sort of geographically, put in a freedom of information request to Haringey Council clearly spurs don't have to reply to those because they're private companies so it's perfectly understandable and it turns out that uh Haringey council are being invoiced by spurs for security and cleaning uh, operations now it could be for all we know that uh, the council have requested these and, and agreed to pay spurs up in advance mm. but it, equally spurs could have turned around and said well we make the biggest profits in the in the Premier League. Tell you what that for the thirty three thousand pounds that this has cost um we we're going to waive that and we'll we're going to give an extra thirty three thousand pounds worth of food you know you, you look at some of the amazing work done by the likes of Marcus Rashford by some of the food banks at places such as everton and Newcastle and so on um and in the main, I think the work that's been done by clubs has been fantastic. Spurs here you know. Four steps forward, one little step back. I'm sure they could just do a little bit more here. Yeah, it it, it, it taints a
1: good news story slightly. My only caveat with private eye is sometimes their sporting instinct isn't quite as good as their news instinct, so it's one to keep an eye on. But let's let's hope it isn't true. But um, if it is, it does it does take the edge off some of the good work they've done without a doubt. So let's get on to questions. It is Monday. It's questions time. Um, our first question, Kieran, you'll love this. This is a proper accounting question from from Mikey in Switzerland. Um, is, is he related to the Swiss Ramble? Yeah, you know, could it could it be a kind operation? What do you reckon? you reckon Swiss Rambles mm. come up against a question he doesn't know the answer to, so he's oh. sent a mate into?
0: Mm. I
1: was just, yeah, there can't be that many Mikeys in Switzerland, can there? So yeah, exactly. I suspect there's a bloke called Mikey who used to drink in my pub who disappeared. It could well be him. What 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 are the extradition agreements like in Switzerland? Um, it's, it's an interesting question, though, and it is a proper accounting question. Mikey in Switzerland says, how will furlough scheme payments be reflected in club accounts? Uh, so, if, for example, if a club topped up the 80% to the full salary, will outgoings remain the same and a new monthly revenue of, for example, government support appear in the profit and loss? Um,
0: <laughs> I've had a look at this one. My my gut instinct, um, because I suspect there might be one or two variants on this, is that the the wage cost, as far as the club is concerned, will be the cash cost to the club itself. So therefore, the the amounts which are being paid directly by government will will effectively be ignored. And it will only be the top up costs being incurred by individual clubs, which will appear as wage costs. Um, it, it won't make it any difference to profit either way because you could have either uh, you know, a, a five million pound wage bill of which two million comes from the government, or you could have a, a three million wage bill um, where where you just show that the net figure. So um, we'll, we'll we'll wait and see for another year. But my gut reaction is that only the amounts being paid by the clubs themselves will appear in the accounts.
1: Okay. Uh, and now our next question, even further afield, uh, in India, and I. I hope I'm pronouncing this first name correctly. It comes from Kyra Arto Banerjee. Um, please let me know if I've pronounced that properly. It, I, I've been through so many websites that pronounce things and none of them agree. But Kyra Arto, if that is correct, uh, his question is about Arsenal. Will the decision by FIFA's disciplinary committee to find Arsenal guilty of breaking third-party influence rules lead to a complete reshuffling of the way sell-on clauses are incorporated into football agreements. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of background for this story, Kieran, for those of us um, who missed it. And I mean those of us. I know we've talked about it on the pod,
0: but you know how easily I drift off. Sure. What, what happened was a few weeks ago, um, Arsenal were effectively fined by FIFA because they had an agreement for uh, a couple of players, uh, Joel Campbell and Chukpa Agpom, um, who they'd sold to to clubs on the continent, And the sell-on clause was that if these players were sold by their new clubs, Arsenal were entitled to 30% of the fee unless those players were sold back to England, Mm. in which case Arsenal would have 40%. So, So FIFA concluded what Arsenal were trying to do, they were trying to subtly prevent any future competition for themselves because if these players... Uh, did progress, and, and you know, I, I did go on record as saying that pom was the worst player ever to put on a Brighton shirt uh, at the Amex uh, in the Amex era. And, and believe me, these are these are a few good ones for competition there. So I'd be surprised if he came back as, as a Premier League player. But um, by making it forty percent effectively, what Arsenal were trying to do is to discourage their existing clubs, which I think are in Greece, from selling back to uh, clubs. In, in the UK. And this was deemed to be inappropriate because it's it's influencing decisions which, to which Arsenal really should have nothing to do with. Um, could it result in, in a change in the rules? I think it's highly unlikely because what appears to have happened is that as FIFA have find Arsenal in respect of this, it would indicate that the existing rules seem to be working uh, quite well. And they will act as a dis, uh, as a disincentive for clubs to put similar clauses in contracts because they know that once that those once those contracts uh, sort of go into the domain of football, they'll be found out, and, and therefore they'll either be fined or they'll be forced to reverse them. That leads us nicely into a question from Ross Wood. Um, which I
1: think is a very interesting one. I'd be interested to hear what you say about this, Kieran, actually. I, I, I could have phoned you up and asked you, but I thought we'd share it with the good people who listen to us every week. Ross's question is, given the scale of agents' fees, so, for example, £12 million in the Timo Werner deal, which on the face of it is part of the release clause and roughly 20% of the fee, in what way is that different to third-party ownership?
0: Right. I, I, I'd a long think about this one and, and did did quite a bit of research on it. Um third party ownership is where you are entitled to money from one deal only. So if, if you take a look at the um when when Tevez went to uh West Ham, um there was a third party ownership there. Where the selling club and these these third party people, and, and the way that third party ownership works is this is quite common in South America, mm. whereby an individual will come along to a club which isn't particularly well off financially and says this: we'll pay a proportion of the player's wages, we will uh, give you some assistance in terms of his development, and um, for that, um, as as we are contributing towards his wages. Um, when you sell him, we're going to be entitled to 30 percent, 40 percent of the fee. Um, and so, so that's uh, that's that's the position of third party ownership. When it comes to an agent, the thing about Timo Werner's agent, not only does he get a slice of the deal, he'll also be getting a slice of Timo Werner's salary um, at Chelsea, which is likely to be sizable. Um, And also, he will be able to renegotiate uh, on behalf of Timo Werner his next contract. And if Timo Werner doesn't like it living in in West London, then he can potentially, in a couple of years' time, start to agitate for his client to move on. Mm -hmm. So an agent relationship tends to be longer term in in respect of the player's um, overall career. or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works. Or what the future holds for independent live music venues. This is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. You can see, where, I mean, Ross is right, the distinction are quite blurred there, aren't they? It's a, um, is, it, is it only in Europe, kid, that third-party ownership is not allowed?
0: uh yes it it is a UA role right. um it is it is uh, it, it is still existing in south america in asia uh, and, and africa and so on um and it, it does have some merit i mean you, uh, uh, also it, it makes you feel slightly uncomfortable because mm. you know we are dealing with young men who are normally sort of you know teenagers um you know when, when does third party ownership become slavery uh in terms of Quite often, the, the the third party will be putting all the pressure in respect of the transfer, and it could be that the you know the lad wants to stay in South America because it's where his friends and family are, and so on. Um, and he, he he might end up having relatively little choice in the matter in terms of his future career. Yeah, it, it's always had slightly sinister overtones for
1: me, I have to say, because you, you genuinely, in a lot of the cases, don't know who the third party is, which worries me. Um, but, Kieran, I've got some good news for you now, because we're having a little trip down the East End, so be prepared to wipe away a, a manly tear as we as we walk through your old haunts and your family's old getaway routes. Um, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen Purton is a... I nearly said Orient family. They don't like that. They, they want the proper name. They are currently later... Orient have been through some names in their past history. Um, uh, but at the moment, they're later Orient. and Stephen Purton reminds us that later Orient was saved from near extinction a while back by Nigel Travis and Kent Teague, uh, who he refers to as Two Heroes, but Stephen asked simply, "Would you explain the financial state that Leighton Orient is in currently, given the huge implication of COVID?"
0: Right. Uh, if you take a look at Leighton Orient, uh, they, they went from uh, Barry Hearn, um, who uh, who I have one or two stories which I can't re- can't repeat on air, um, and they they then had another, then an overseas owner who who seemed to be getting through managers at an alarming rate. Um, And and they were rescued by by Nigel Travis, whose main connection is with Krispy Kreme Donuts in the U.S. And and I've heard Nigel speak. And he's, uh, you know, he he was born in the East End. He's got a huge affection for for, for, the Latin Orient. Um, But if you take a look at uh, the club accounts um, and their abbreviated accounts, which, which, you know, gets me in another soapbox. Mm -hmm. um, They've been losing on average £50,000 a week for eight years. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that is pretty significant for a club which is, you know, it, it's bumped around in, in League One, League Two, National League and so on. Um, you, you've got to give the new owners credit so that they certainly have the club moving in the right direction. Um, we are now starting to see the club spend money on transfer fees. They did that last year. Uh, in a division where over half the clubs didn't spend a penny, so uh, I think things are, are moving forwards. Um, but as Stephen uh, says, uh, you know the new owners. I think the fans have a lot to be to be uh, thankful for. They appear to have opened up lines of communication as well, uh, which is something we're always in favour of, rather than sort of you know just uh, anodyne press releases every few months uh, that you that you see in respect of other clubs. So uh, Leyton Orient finances, they're finding it tough. Um, but they uh, have a benevolent dictator, which is my favourite form of ownership. Yeah, you're a big fan of the benevolent dictator, aren't you? you oh, you, very much so. Yeah, I think you're at heart you're a
1: benevolent dictator yourself, aren't you, With when the Baroness is out for the day anyway. Um, West Ham over Land and Sea Forum tweeted to ask, uh, again, it's an interesting one, it's something that hadn't occurred to me, do, do West Ham get all some or none of the catering money at their new stadium?
0: Right. Um, as far as the London Stadium are concerned, we, we've got we've got third parties here. Um, we've we've got the landlord uh, E20 uh, LLP. Mm. We've then got the people in charge of catering, who are a company called London Stadium One Eight Five. They've got a twenty five year exclusive deal, and then they've got the people who have, effectively they've outsourced the catering to, who are called Delaware North. So you've got lots of fingers in lots of pies. <laughs> um, Very good. Thank you. Um, So in terms of West Ham, overall, their catering income um, works out as uh, around about six million pounds a year is the estimate um, of which West Ham Football Club get around about 30 percent of the profits after the first five hundred thousand pounds worth of profit. So you put that into a spreadsheet and you work out the costs of the, the cost of the food, the costs of uh, you know, the cost of cooking the food, the cost of staff and so on. I don't think West Ham are going to be making a lot. Um, I think the landlords claim that they made around about 600k in profits. That's E20 last year. Um, I, I'd be surprised if West Ham were making more than that. Right and there's no distinction between profit made
1: on match days or non match days i mean I know there's not a lot of non match day income at the moment, but when things are back to normal it's it's exactly the same for both situations is it
0: well no because west ham they they pay uh that they pay two and a half million pounds in rent to e twenty and that grants them effectively the use of the stadium on twenty five days of the year right. so, it's, oh, it's, right. so on, if if it's uh I went to the uh Athletics competition at the at the stadium a couple of years ago. The catering there would have gone to the landlords 100%. West Ham wouldn't have picked up a dime.
1: Oh, okay, right. I I thought for a moment you were talking about the the Olympics, but clearly you were talking after that. Okay. Um, now I missed this story, Kieran. So i will be intrigued to hear what you make of it. It's it's a question from Shay Cunningham, who's a Leeds fan, uh, and he wants to know what you think of the Premier League's plan to charge the three promoted clubs. £24 million pounds towards the season's Sky rebate. Um, Leeds fan Shea Caneming says it feels like being mugged. But I suppose the three relegated clubs would think it was even less fair if they were asked to pay towards it, wouldn't they?
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, this. It looks as if the Premier League are going to have to have an overall rebate of around about £350 million quid. Now, what they've managed to persuade the, the broadcasters is rather than that money be subtracted from 2019-20, where you've got clubs also, of course, missing out in terms of matchday income. And matchday income varies on a match-by-match basis. You've got a club like Bournemouth, who makes probably about 250k per match, to the likes of Manchester United, who make 4 million. Um, So this 350 million rebate works out as around about 18 million pounds per club. Um, That's going to have to be paid over a, a period of time right. and it looks as if the Premier League have had a word with their broadcast partners and said look guys we, we, can't, we can't afford to pay this back this year on top of all the money we've lost out on uh, in, in terms of match day as well right. so therefore the proposal is that the rebate is going to be split between 202021 and 202122, i.e. over the next course uh, next couple of seasons, so that's going to work out at around about eight million pounds per club who is in the Premier League in respect of those two seasons. Of course, in 202021, that's going to include Leeds United, West Bromwich Albion, mm. and Fulham um so you you can understand that it feel that the fans feeling a bit sore about that at the same time they have been promoted and their tv income's going from seven million pounds a year to 100 million so you know they are losing out a little bit but they're gaining far more from promotion um and if you take a look at you know, the money they're making from commercial deals. I I was talking to somebody at a club who had been recently promoted uh, and they said their commercial income went up by a factor of 10. And if you take a look at the championship, um, there, there was a story going around that there are still... Five clubs in the championship this season who have not yet got front of shirt sponsorship deals signed. Now, that's not the case in the Premier League. No, of course. Well, I I think as well, it'd be some consolation for Leeds fans, Shea Cunningham.
1: I'm guessing we'll see more of Leeds on BT and Sky and the BBC than we will of Fulham and West Brom because they're a huge brand with a global interest aren't they so there there will be a lot of broadcast coverage for them and therefore a lot of money from sponsors etc now um our next question comes from xx Morton Mathiasen in denmark now Morton, if you're listening and i sincerely hope you are why wouldn't you be i don't know why producer guy has put xx down in front of your name. It could be that he was ordering a T-shirt at the time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, He's very it, slim, his producer. Well, well that's, that's what made me wonder. I mean, it might be that somebody at Amazon is going, we seem to have a question here from Morton Mitharsen in Denmark. Um, I, I generally don't know uh, why X... It could be your name, XX Morton. in which case I apologise. But Morton's question is a very pertinent one, I think. Um, he says... Um, Many lower league clubs list cost of testing as a reason for not playing, but testing is publicly available, says Morton, and and nowhere near close to capacity. So why can't staff and players at clubs in the lower leagues use free public facilities? Now, it's such a good question. Maybe XX is code for this week's top tournament winner. Because well, guys, that's for you to decide. That's for you to decide, Kevin, in the absence I, of Guy. I I've told Guy I'm not taking that responsibility on myself. I'm not I'm not going Sophie's choice on any of the questions that I love. Um Guy's obviously forgotten about in his headlong rush to the lake districts. But so maybe XX is code for that, I don't know. But it's it's an interesting question. I mean, as he says, the, the public testing facilities, it seems, aren't being used to full capacity. So why can't the likes of Forest Green troop down to the local car park and get the test there?
0: Well, uh testing is now available to the public. Um if you take a look at when football was abandoned, which was was March, and then the decision to, to, to terminate the leagues in in the form of League One and League Two, it wasn't available um for public testing. It the focus was on uh frontline workers. So so it, it is now available so clubs could take advantage of it. Um but there's a couple of issues. First of all, we, we've got the, the speed at which you get your results. If you go to some of these uh, mm-hmm. private clinics, you will get your results back quicker. And then there's the frequency. Now, I, I don't, I've not looked at the, the details in terms of public testing, but I'm not convinced that you can actually go there twice a week, right. um, as is the requirements, I think, in order to play football once again. Um, you know, it could be that you are capped, that you can only go once a month, or something of that nature, or if you've been in contact with somebody that that has COVID-19. So th- those will be the issues. But certainly initially, when, when football was trying to come back, and the the, uh, the some some of the owners of League One and League Two clubs were were looking, at, you know, and the cupboard was bare. No money's coming in. Yeah. They, they still had to pay some wages, um, e- even if they were furloughed um and on top of that, this was just an additional cost as well uh I think those costs by all accounts have come down. I was talking to somebody this morning who who is connected with a with a local uh, club here in Sussex, and so yeah what's, what's happening with you guys uh, and he said well, we're going full steam ahead as far as next season is concerned um you know we we don't have to do testing um you know it, it to the same extent and uh you know a bit of social distancing. For fans, and you know, we, we should be okay. And that's now that's far below sort of National League level. Sure. But it does show that th- things are starting to, t- t- to move forwards. Uh, I-, I saw that my local cricket club were out playing yesterday, which was which is fantastic. You know, it- It's good that some form of normality is taking place and you don't need COVID-19 testing for things of that nature as well.
1: Yeah, of course you've got a local cricket club. I'm guessing that your local cricket club is probably my local cricket club, basically, about 50 miles away. <laughs> um, yeah, I- I'm guessing as well, I imagine the, the Premier League and the EFL protocols around testing... A- are much stricter than marching your players down to a public test, probably insurance issues as well. But it's if anybody out there knows differently to us, then please let us know. But it is encouraging, Kieran, to hear you say that about sport, even at a local level. Just as I was very, very encouraged to see people in the Crucible Theatre last night as well. It kind of that lifted my spirits immensely. I have to say. Uh, James Linus asked our penultimate question, uh, and James Linus. Is asking Kieran about EFL chairman Rick Parry, who has once again voiced his opposition to the Premier League making parachute payments to relegated teams. Uh, relegated. I tried so hard to pronounce the T there that I made a double glottal stop. Relegated teams, um, which distorts competition in the Championship and even in, in League One, with some circumstances, as if Sunderland. Uh, James says, couldn't the EFL deal with that by making it a condition of membership that any club who does get relegated with a parachute payment has to distribute a proportion of it across the EFL? Uh,
0: well, th- that would be interesting because ultimately it's the Premier League's money. Uh, yeah, the, pa- the, the, pre- the parachute uh, yeah, payments like. are paid by the Premier League to their members or rather their former members. Um, so I think if the, if the EFL tried to introduce a rule of that nature, um, there could be a lot of kickback because if you take a look at uh, clubs in the championship, they presently get seven million pounds a season uh, in, in terms of TV money, of which four and a half million comes from the Premier League. Now, if uh, if, if they're not going to, uh, or if, if, they're going, if the EFL are going to start to dictate how Premier League money is distributed to former Premier League teams, mm. it could be the existing Premier League teams turn around and say, well, if that's your attitude, uh, that four and a half million pounds that the likes of Derby and Forrest and Borough or well not Borough, because they, they've still just received their last parachute payments. But the, you know, Barnsley and so on have been getting. We, we're going to stop doing that. Um, and it's a little bit hypocritical as well, because if you are relegated from the EFL to the National League, you get parachute payments from the EFL. Now, if parachute payments are as bad as the EFL are claiming, why are they paying them themselves? Mm. To clubs that get relegated into the National League. My, my view of parachutes is that they, in, they, they increase competitive balance in the Premier League because it allows clubs like Palace and Brighton to go out into the European market, come back and say, right, we're going to offer you 40, 45, 50K a week, so you we the average that clubs at our level are, pay, are paying um, in, in terms of the weekly wage. Um, and if you get relegated, you're going to get a 20% reduction Mm. if there were no parachute payments you'd have to say here's 50 grand a week but if you if we get relegated it's an 80 to 90 percent pay cut and the players will just turn around and say bog off Mm. um so it's good for competitive balance as far as the premier league is concerned and that's all premier league owners care about is it good for competitive balance in the championship well Sunderland had parachute payments they had one set of parachute payments in the championship and they got relegated straight away. They've had two years of parachute payments in League One. It's not done them a lot of good. So um, they've the, the, the trouble is that they do create an arms race in terms of wages in the championship, which isn't good. Overall, they're good for the Premier League. They're not good for the championship. It's
1: interesting that you mentioned Sunderland because I've I've got in brackets Sunderland scenario because in in five years' time when there's a um, a salary cap in in League One you could have a club that's you know, relegated to two seasons running as Sunderland were who get a parachute payment and haven't got wages to spend it on essentially so they'll be sitting on a lot of money which they will then spend on players rather than players' wages I guess
0: yes but remember when they when a club is relegated from one division to another you ignore the player's actual salary and you put in its place the average salary for the division to which he's newly entered into. So therefore if, if you've got, um, who was it? Jack Rodwell was on, was it 70 grand a week, no relegation clause Sunderland got relegated into League 1. Sunderland is still paying him 70 grand a week, but as far as the EFL's uh, clipboard kids are concerned, uh, he's only being paid 1300 pounds a week.
1: Yeah. We've been married long enough for me to recognize the tone of voice when you said remember. That's that's a remember which indicates that you've told me that before several times and I haven't remembered. That's that's the tone of voice Ali uses when I put the teacups with the handles facing the wrong way in the dishwasher. Oh, that is dangerous. That is Kevin. Yes. Oh God. King Tetris. Um, <laughs> uh, our final question comes from Alan Bunce. Now, I suspect Alan may have been waiting a couple of weeks to have this question answered because it's, it indicates that the season was just finishing. I apologise for that, Alan. We do have an awful lot of questions, and sometimes the more topical ones go to the top of the list. But um, I'm very pleased you asked this because it's an issue, um, one of many, I have to say, that drives me up the wall as Alan says, is there a financial reason why clubs often wear their second kit at away matches when the first kit doesn't clash? And he's a Reading fan, so he gives the example of Reading wearing black at Luton instead of blue and white hoops, which don't clash with orange, obviously. So is there a reason for this, Kieran? Are, are they showing? Is this, is this anything to do with sponsorship? Is it? Do you, do you have to wear the away kit a certain amount of times for sponsorship deals, or is it just that they love showing off their black kit?
0: Um, no, there, there is no hard and fast rule. There used to be an eight game minimum rule in terms of wearing an away kit. Oh, okay. uh, but that rule has been abolished, is my understanding. Um, having looked at the rules in detail and by gum, there's a number of uh, the number of sub clauses uh, in terms of this. You've got to look at some of the things such as um, do the cleaves do the sleeves clash? So if if uh, if I look at say West Ham versus Brighton, I'd say well yeah we play in blue and white stripes, West Ham playing claret and you know, it's mainly reddish. Mm. Um, but that we wouldn't be able to wear our uh, away kit because we've got blue sleeves, as have West Ham. And for decisions such as handball and offside, if you think about it from the linesman's point of view, it's actually very difficult. So. Um, that's one of the considerations which is taken into account also you've got issues in terms of shorts and socks that again from a from a uh, offside point of view it's a lot easier if if from a linesman's perspective if you have um socks which are of different color so so that could be taken in consideration but whilst we're on the issue of color kits i'm speaking as a colorblind person why are there so many matches taking place where you've got one side in red and one side in green? Because you know it's it's absolutely ludicrous. It it affects ten percent of mm. uh, who are mm. colourblind, who are red green colourblind. I'm mm. pretty, I'm horrendously colourblind. Although uh, I owe I owe my wife uh, my wife's seduction to my colorblindness because I was uh, I, I was trying to buying a matching tie and shirt for a job interview um, and. <laughs> I went up to this woman in Marks Spencer, who just happened to be the Baroness, and said, "This is this is as good an opening line as you could possibly want." Um, "Excuse me, could you help me? I've got a job interview. Could you help me choose a matching tie and shirt? I'm colorblind. Um Oh lordy, yeah, and then and,
1: Dick, and the rest is history. Yeah, and then Dick Emery came in and interrupted you. It's, um, yes, well, that's that, that's up there with. Uh, um, I don't know if I should tell you this because it it cheered Ali up. Martin Keown, Ali was working in pantomime in Oxford last year uh, and Martin Keown came up to her in the shoe department of a department store and said, you look like a woman who knows her way around Dr. Martin's. Should I buy these? (laughs) Which is (laughs) – it's so so romantic that you went up to a complete stranger and said, I'm I'm trying to (laughs) – the fact that you, you, you wanted your shirt to match your tie is so touching to go with your safari suit back there in the 70s. Um, is it? I just think, talking about back there in the 70s, just do what we used to do in the 70s. If your socks clash, put different colour socks on. Have your normal well, kit and then have your, or, or just put blue. Yeah, you know, I used to love it when for no apparent reason, Palace would trot out an away ground in, you know, red and blue shirts
0: and black shorts for no reason. You know, it just used to make me laugh. I'm, I'm with you, but I think officially now you have. Tiered you know kits, Mm. Um, yeah. And and Palace have got have they got red in each of their kits this season?
1: They've got red and blue in each of their kits as well. Oddly, the the black the black kit and the away kit and the white kit both have red and blue stripes on, which is. um, Yet yeah, good for branding, but not brilliant for choosing an away kit. But there you go. Um, it, 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 Alan, thank you for that question. It, it started a discussion. I, I didn't know where it was going to end when Kieran started talking about the Baroness and colour blindness. But there you go. For once, it ended uh, without an R18 certificate. Um, if you do have a question, it's questions at com, And we will be back again on Thursday uh, with our usual news pod. So and let's finish with Kieran's usual message to you all.
0: Uh, well, stay safe, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and also, if you do enjoy the show, uh, if, if you could give us a review using the Apple purple icon, we, we don't understand how it works, especially me and Kevin. We've got no technological skills whatsoever. Uh, but we've been told it's good for business, um, which might mean that at some point in time, we might actually be paid. Um, yeah, we,
1: uh, we, yeah, we can say that. because the producer guy's not listening to this, is he? He's away on his trip to the Lake District that we've paid for.
0: Yes. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, we
1: could could get paid a going wage. That'd be nice. We're not even on sweatshop money.
0: um, And and in terms of uh, the best question, um, I I think Alan's question on kits was was an absolute cracker. So, uh, Alan, if you you want to drop us a line at uh, questions at price of football, send us your address, and uh, I'll send you out a colour coordinated set of price of football top trump cards, (laughs) colour
1: coordinated, the very best. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Price of football. I football.